The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to, the, and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Today is the second week after the Epiphany, 
And this is a season, if you have been here before, you may have, have experienced this in detail, but this season specifically highlights the unveiling and the presentation of Jesus to the nation of Israel as the Messiah. And not only just the nation in a general way, but also his disciples and the apostles in very specific ways. Here we see an encounter with John the Baptist that then becomes the avenue by which Christ calls and commissions forth his disciples. So we have two major elements going on in the season of Epiphany. We have the national unveiling of the Messiah, the national representation of this is the Christ, this is the Son of God, as he was publicly validated as the Son of God by the Father which spoke from heaven and the Spirit which came and descended as a dove at his baptism. And now, at this point, John is then again publicly testifying, and that goes from that public testimony to the nation and the people around them. It becomes a very specific calling for the disciples. And so I want to look at today's passage in light of what we saw last week at Jesus' baptism. It's somewhat represented here in the first chapter of John through John the Baptist's testimony. And just as I said last week, uh, John the Baptist is a man who was born before Jesus was born, and he was Jesus' cousin by natural birth, that is, by family relation. And Uh, that is different than John the Apostle who wrote the Gospel of John. So throughout the sermon today, I'll be saying something like, John the Baptist says this, or John says this. And on the other hand, I might say, John shows us how Nathaniel responded. Then I'm talking about John the Apostle. So I'll try to, as much as I can, be clear on what I'm saying there. But just so you know the context, there's John the Baptist, John the Apostle. can be a little bit confusing if you don't see that. So I want to look at this story, this, this historical narrative, this accurate response, uh, accurate recording by John the, uh, the Apostle of what is going on. And I want to look at it in four ways. First, I want to look at John the Baptist's testimony of who Christ is as both divine and human. That really is the central point of today's message is to see Jesus Christ not only as a man, there was no doubt that he was a man to his first uh, to his first audience. He appeared as a man. He was a man for all, for all intents and purposes. He is really a human being. And yet, everything that we see with John the Baptist and the disciples who are called, everything is saying he's more than a man. And so we're going to look at how they tell us those things, that he is also divine, not just human. And this divinity and humanity of Jesus Christ is really the central point of of epiphany. It's not just unveiling him as a special person or a sinless person or a prophet, but also as the mediator, the one who will make an atonement and at the same time is God in the flesh walking among us. Jesus then calls his disciples, and we're going to look at how that works with John the Baptist's disciples coming to follow Christ, but actually it's the case that Christ calls his disciples. See, later in John's gospel, as Jesus is teaching the disciples right before he's about to go to the cross, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And so we have to understand how does John, at the last part of his gospel, harmonize with this first chapter when it appears that the disciples begin to follow Jesus. 
Is it really that the disciples are following Jesus or is it really that Jesus calls them to follow him? And I'm going to be arguing for the latter point that Jesus is the one who calls his disciples. I want to look specifically at Jesus's giving of a new name to Simon, which his new name is Peter, what that entails and what it possibly could mean and apply to us. And then finally, I want to look at this interplay between Nathaniel. Hopefully, if you, when we get there, you can remember the wonderful little tone of voice that John Gray used when he was reading the scripture. Nathaniel is saying something that is radically offensive, but is funny, because all jokes at, a some, at some element are slightly humorous. Uh, the only ones that aren't humorous aren't actually, or aren't really offensive, uh, aren't very funny. Uh, to, to be honest, uh, you know, if you've ever heard the kids say, you want to hear a dirty joke, right? The dog jumped in the mud. Well, that's only humorous because it, it, you have the expectation that it'll be a dirty joke. It's not a very funny joke. The, the point is that Nathaniel's telling a joke and Jesus jabs right back. And I, I want to see why that's actually very important to the nature of the gospel. So, just prior to Jesus' visitation, John the Baptist has a question that's put to him by the Pharisees. They ask him, are you the Christ? And then John the Baptist does not affirm that he is the Christ. He doesn't deny answering, but says that I am not the Christ, but rather I am a voice. And then John, the gospel writer, interprets this as being a fulfillment of Uh, the words of Isaiah. In verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And then John uh, John the Baptist then connects it to, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John the apostle is writing this gospel and he's recording John the Baptist's testimony. And John the Baptist references something in the Old Testament that is concerning a voice who was going to come, and that voice was going to be in the wilderness where John was baptizing. And that voice is identified as a word that Isaiah said would come before the coming of the Lord. He identifies this as the fulfillment. And the word Lord in your Bibles is often uh, somewhat difficult to understand. In the New Testament, the word often uh, becomes Lord, uh, L-O-R-D, with lowercase letters after the L. And in the Old Testament Bible, or the, the, the Old Testament portion of the scripture, often your translators will put the word Lord in capital letters. Now, this veils something, but once you understand what they're doing, it doesn't veil it, but actually expands the vision of what the translators of your scriptures were trying to convey, that the New Testament completely demonstrates the one who came, Jesus Christ, as being none other than Yahweh himself. And so when you see L-O-R-D, those are actually the letters in the Hebrew which come into the English as Y-H-W-H. Now, that word is translated either Jehovah If you are reading uh, the Young's literal, it'll always be Jehovah. If you're reading uh, the the New King James or the English Standard, most of the time they will translate it as capital L-O-R-D, and they won't even substitute it out. But occasionally you will see the word Yahweh. And the word Yahweh is an English word in which vowels are inserted between the consonants so that we can just utter it. That it's not... 
We're not changing God's name. It's not a manipulation of the character or nature of God. It's simply just a way that we can speak about it because in English, it's very hard for us to say words that don't have consonants. If you've ever heard someone speaking Hebrew, you can understand or you can probably imagine how they would be able to say a word without consonants. They just have a different mode of speech. And so what John the Baptist is doing, however, is saying he was the one who was sent to prepare the way of Yahweh. And yet immediately in John the Apostle's gospel, we're going to see who comes near, rather not Yahweh, not a spirit, but a man. And this is John the Baptist's intentional point. John says he prepares the way of Yahweh, but as John the Apostle writer says, then he saw Jesus coming to him. He said, I was sent for this purpose that Yahweh would come, that Yahweh would have a straight path, and the one in the gospel who comes walking before him is Jesus in the flesh. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And said, Behold the Lamb of God. See, John the Baptist was effective in his ministry. He did prepare the nation so that they could withstand the unveiling of the Lord. The Old Testament constantly presents a picture of the sin of the people, that they're exiled or they're pushed away from the presence of God because of their sin. And John the Baptist preaches a message saying, Repentance and forgiveness is available because God is coming to reconcile the people to himself. And in so doing, Jesus walks among them and is God, Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh. The people were prepared and John had accomplished his purpose. The way was straight and so Jesus could come toward him. John publicly testifies that Jesus is the Lamb of God, the one that God himself puts forward to be the propitiation of sin. I want you to understand that this word Lamb of God is not just describing that Jesus was God. It is rather the Lamb which God is putting forth. For example, in the Passover, a family had to sacrifice a lamb. And that sacrifice was, would be considered the father of that family putting forth the lamb. The question is, who is the one offering up the lamb? John the Baptist is saying quite clearly, this is not just a lamb who's come of his own. This is the lamb put forth by God. John is drawing on a manifold theme from the Old Testament. Every single covering, which for a time made it possible for the people of God to exist even in their sin and have some measure of fellowship was always on the basis of a symbol. And that symbol often took the form of the lamb for the sin offering. There are five five major offerings in the Old Testament that are commanded to be done at the tabernacle, which then continue on in the temple. And each one of those offerings has a specific purpose. There's an ascension offering, which is a person coming and wishing to just worship the Lord in a free sense. There are the peace offerings in which they are trying to reconcile themselves to God after some sort of unintentional transgression. The trespass offering, which is understanding the the nature of sin between God and them and their neighbor. And then finally, the sin offering and the grain offering. But the sin offering always was a lamb. 
You see, of all the different types of offerings, each one could be a goat or a bull, what have you, but the one that dealt with a need to reconcile of intentional sin committed against God was a lamb. You see, the Lamb of God is a complex theme of the Old Testament, and John the Baptist is saying, all these other lambs, which never worked, are met in this one. That this Lamb of God is the one that God is putting forth to be a reconciliation. And in fact, the New Testament says this quite clearly. Paul in Romans 3, he says, God put him forth to be a propitiation, one who would make God pleased to forgive. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That is not a technicality. It is not a rule which God is beholden to, but rather God himself establishes the rightness of that rule so that Christ would receive the glory as being the offering and mediator. Verse 30, John goes on to say, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. You see, John the Baptist is not simply saying, in describing Jesus as the Lamb of God, that he is a human sacrifice, but also that this human who is walking among us is no mere human. You see, John is going back and forth between showing the glory of Christ as the mediator, the glory of Christ as the offering, the one who will make atonement, and then also being God. You see, what John is hoping to do through his testimony is say to the people of Israel, what's happening is something that you would not believe even if someone told you. And this is exactly what is going to take place. Something so great, something so wonderful is happening that John the Baptist has to draw on every possible reference and allusion and complex picture to say, take notice of what is going on. I think this is probably one of my favorite moments in the gospel accounts because I just imagine what John is doing as he's standing and he's baptizing and the Spirit comes and remains upon him, and then Jesus goes up from there. After Jesus comes back, he publicly testifies. Everyone he's baptized that day, everyone who was going to be baptized that day, they are at the banks of the Jordan, and he sees Jesus coming by, and he tells the public, behold. And in fact, John the Apostle in his gospel shows that John the Baptist said this twice confirming the matter. Behold, take notice. John the Baptist is trying to say there's something amazing here. He's just said that he's the lamb, and now he goes on to say something that immediately on the surface isn't quite clear, but with a little pressing out, we can understand clearly what John is saying. He says, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John testifies of Christ's glory that he ranks higher. And what's interesting to me is that Jesus, as we saw last week, said, of all the men who were born of women, none has arisen who is greater than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist publicly testifies that Christ is greater. You see, Jesus is testifying of the glory and the work of John the Baptist, his special role. And John the Baptist turns around and says, that is true, but this one is greater than I. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. You see, John the Baptist isn't using false humility. 
False humility is something that denies one's own position at the expense of seeking to puff someone up. It's flattery, essentially. It's, it's going around thinking of yourself as a worm and you know, never, never acknowledging that God's grace is ever bearing any fruit in you. That, that's false humility. John the Baptist isn't doing that. That's how great he thinks Christ is. He's saying, I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. You see, you or I, we have no one that we know that is like that. Consider, for example, the various dignitaries and and people who you hold in high regard and esteem. I've had the pleasure of meeting a few people who have national ministries or national public worship leading uh, roles or, or what have you. And one of the things that I've always had, it has never been an exception, is after the meeting, I realized, wow, I really had that person up here and they're just like me. John the Baptist says, I'm not worthy to eat with him. I'm not worthy to do a chore for him. I'm not even worthy to baptize him, let alone untie his shoes as a servant. See, the lowest possible action that a servant could possibly take would be the untying of a sandal that is encrusted with dirt and dung and sand and mud. It's the lowest possible image that John can say, I'm not even worthy to speak to him unless he comes and receives me. And yet, John is not using hyperbole. He's saying, and he truly believes, that he ranks before me. And the only way that Christ can rank before John is not just in as glorious of a man as he is called to be, although Christ had a greater office than John, but Christ himself existed before John existed. The Hebrew culture, through the fifth commandment, began to take on an an understanding of the glory of a person as befits their role in history, their calling from God, and also their origin. For example, when we consider the roots of our faith, we think of ourselves as children of Abraham. That's a phrase that we learn from the scripture. And yet, whenever we talk about the God of our fathers, we always list it in this order. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And encoded in that phrase or in those groups of words is an understanding that what God did with Abraham is worthy of respect because it is the foundation for what comes after. And what John the Baptist is saying is, I didn't come of my own accord. I didn't come to start something and Jesus picked it up. I am doing something that began in time, and yet Jesus, who was born after me, came before me. Though John was conceived and born before Jesus, John says that Jesus was before him. And that can only mean that Christ existed before he was conceived by the Spirit. See, the Christian faith teaches that the Holy Spirit conceived Christ in Mary's womb, and this is a divine mystery. We don't have much understanding from the text, but we know that the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary, and through this testimony, John the Baptist publicly announces that Jesus existed before he was born, before he was conceived, because John the Baptist, in his life, witnessed to the existence of Christ as John leapt in his mother Elizabeth's womb at the Annunciation from 
Mary to Elizabeth. John then goes on to testify of his own ignorance. He says, I myself did not know him. This, I think, is massively important for us to catch. John is saying that he did not even know who Christ was. That is, he didn't know the Messiah's role. He didn't know which one was to be the one who the Spirit would descend on and remain. John describes this ignorance, and he does it, and especially in light of what I just mentioned, that John leapt in his mother's womb, yet as to his natural relation with Jesus by family, he didn't have spiritual insight. This is what John is saying, that there was a revelation from heaven. John does not know Jesus as the Messiah, even though he's related, but only as it has been revealed from heaven. John, later in John, the gospel writer's gospel in chapter 3, there's this controversy that comes, and John's disciples notice that Jesus and his disciples are baptizing, and more people are following Jesus, and they say, hey, John, this was our thing. We started this baptism, and they're drawing a a greater crowd. And John responds that it's not right for them to be envious because Jesus is the bridegroom, and he also says something that is massively important to how we understand the gospel. A man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from heaven. You see, John the Baptist in this verse publicly testifies as to the natural mind even though I was near him, knew him, was related to him, I did not know him. But rather, I saw him by one thing, by the evidence which comes out of heaven. John ends his discourse testifying of a Trinitarian confidence that is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit publicly agree at Christ's baptism. They publicly testify and say one thing together in the same voice, so to speak. The Father has sent John looking for the one upon whom the Spirit would descend and remain, and that is the one who baptizes in the Spirit and takes away sin. Finally, John releases his disciples to follow Christ. This is somewhat in anticipation of what will happen later in John chapter 3. But here, John does not retain his disciples. As his disciples begin to go, we see nothing, we hear nothing from the text of John trying to prevent them, but rather he lets them go, demonstrating the authority of the Messiah. So at this point, I want to look at how these two disciples begin to follow Christ and how they do not follow him of his own accord, but rather he receives them as his disciples. They can only be disciples if he received them and chose him, chose them. A very similar thing happens when God, uh, when God records the story through the gospel writer of uh, Jesus calling Matthew. You see, Matthew was a tax collector, And Matthew was called, and he was called as a tax collector. He wasn't called after he stopped being a tax collector. And then Jesus chose sovereignly to enter Matthew's house and to allow other tax collectors and sinners to come and eat with him. None of that can take place unless Jesus comes into Matthew's house and stays when they come to him. Over and over again, we see Jesus saying to mostly people who are outside the household of Israel that he is not able to give them entrance into the things of the 
the covenant because they are not party to the covenant. In a very likewise manner, he does not simply let these disciples follow him, but rather he calls them to follow him. And if we look closely at the text, we will see this clearly. He says in verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? In rabbinic tradition, the pattern of teaching is always through questions. And so Jesus asks them a question, what are you seeking? And then they answer properly, not with a particular idea. We're not seeking eternal life. We're not seeking to know who you are. They say what they, they evidence what their heart's desire is. They, they want to be with him. They want to stay with him. They reply, where are you staying? And then in verse 39, he says, come and you will see. This phrase, come and see, is repeated again later in the chapter as we're about to see. It says, so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. Now, it looks immediately from the surface of the text, from the narrative perspective, as these two disciples come, Jesus sees them, turns around, and says, what are you doing? They say, well, we want to know where you're staying. And then he says, come and follow me. So if you think about it from a limited perspective, you might say, well, the disciples chose to follow Christ. But Christ could have said, immediately after they asked, where are you staying? He could have said, you have no portion in me. You have no right to know where I'm staying. I come from above and you are from the earth. You cannot perceive. He could have responded with any of those things. And yet he says, come and see. I want you to think about this. After Christ bids them to come, then he does the same with Philip. He commands or calls Philip saying, come and follow me. Interestingly, Philip says to Nathanael the very words that Christ said to the two men who came from John the Baptist. They said, Jesus replies to them, come and you will see. And then Philip, in speaking to Nathanael, after Nathanael's question, he says, uh, come and see. Later, when Jesus talks to Nathanael, he says that Philip called you. Notice that clearly. Jesus uses the words, come and see. And then Philip uses the same words, come and see. And then when Jesus is talking to Nathanael, he says, when Philip called you or before Philip called you. The point is this, that Jesus is the one calling. Jesus answered him before Philip called you. Jesus is the one who calls his disciples. So after calling the disciples from John, Jesus then receives Simon. And as we know, Simon is, excuse me, or well, it wasn't my fault, but excuse me for the tech problem. Uh, Simon is a major story, a major element in the story of the gospels. And this first encounter that Jesus does with Simon is extremely important. Because it tells us, again, not just of the mission of Christ in forming disciples and calling disciples to be with him, but it also tells us of the glory and the power of Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry that he exhibits in calling the disciples. See, the miracles of Jesus Christ are not always what we see immediately on the surface of the text as healings and walking on the water, and multiplying bread, and the transfiguration. Yes, all of these things are his miracles, 
But almost always, there's something right underneath that is even a greater miracle. After calling the disciples from John, Jesus receives Simon, and something very interesting happens. Jesus then says to Simon his identity, and then he prophesies something. We're going to see this in just a second, but I want to explain to you the importance of names biblically. Today, we have a culture that names are really empty of any sort of significance or meaning. I actually, one of the things I do if I meet someone and they have a name I've never heard, I ask them what it means. Because I want to know a little bit about, you know, just out of a general curiosity. But something is radically shaped in the giving of a name. A name traditionally is bestowed from a father to his children or to his child, either at their uh, public revelation at their circumcision in the Old Covenant, or in their New Covenant baptism. In fact, most of the the church has always had a name, a given name, and then a given Christian name, that they received a name at their baptism, and that's pointing back to this. That was a tradition that took on shape in in the church throughout the centuries because they were trying to say something about names. That In coming to Christ, something changes about an identity. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus said to him, you are Simon, the son of John. What's interesting to me about this is that Jesus identifies not only his name, but also his lineage. I believe that personally, this is, I'm personally convinced, I don't think there's a ton of evidence in the text, but it seems fitting that just as what he's about to do with Nathaniel, he does first with Simon. That he says to Simon, you are Simon Barjona, or Simon the son of Jonah, or the son of John. Jonah and John are very similar, they're they're the same in in Hebrew. And, And he calls out an identity in him, and then begins to say, something that is shaping Simon's destiny, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. I think this is a remarkable testimony through Christ of his own majesty in his divinity and his mission, that he totally and omnisciently knows Simon, and that he sees something in Simon, spiritually speaking, that needs to die. We know throughout the the Gospels, he still is called Simon Peter, And occasionally he will be called Simon alone. And what are we to make of this? Well, it's very clear then that what Jesus is saying is that he doesn't say, from now on you will be known as Cephas, or you will be known as Peter alone, but rather there is something about you, something what I'm going to do with you, Simon, that I'm going to allow through my ministry towards you, through my through my healing of your soul, that you will allow something in you to die and you will be reborn. That you will no longer be known as Simon, but you shall be called Peter. And in fact, I think there are moments where this comes to fruition. That would take us too far afield in the Gospels to, uh, to, to talk about today. But the point is that Jesus is spiritually discerning what is going on with Simon and what he is going to do in making him into Peter. 
And this Peter, this word that means little rock or smooth stone, later will become the very apostle through in his epistle who tells the rest of the church, you are living stones being built upon the foundation of Christ. You see, Jesus sees a self-confidence in Peter and he calls it, he calls him to follow him. And in calling a disciple to follow him, he tells them, you must come and die. Your identity wrapped up in Simon, that will end and you will be known as Peter. I think he does this in the prophetic sense and it actually is a wonderful application to us. You see, our names, the the names we were given by our human fathers or mothers, uh, those names carry some small significance, but they do not shape our eternal destiny. And this is so important for today's culture. We have generations of young people raised up in homes of divorce, raised up in homes of distant, neglectful parents, or raised up in homes maybe not even with a single mom or a single dad, but maybe a grandparent or an uh, an aunt or an uncle. The point is that your human identity, whether you were the son of John, as Simon was, or not, does not shape who Christ calls you to come and be. Christ is calling Simon to follow him, and he says that I will give you a new name, Cephas. This is actually speaking about the majesty and authority that Christ understands that he has. And when you see this in the context of the scripture, what Jesus is doing is radically important. Throughout all of the scripture, whenever a name is changed, it is always either changed by God or someone who thinks they are God. When God called Abram, he was called a mighty father, but then he becomes Abraham, a father of many nations. Sarai goes from, I think, princess to, I I forget. the, the, The point is that God is bringing about a destiny shaping. At first, Israel is contending with God. That's Israel's name, one who contends. And then he becomes Jacob. And he becomes Jacob through God's taking hold of him and transforming him. This even happens in the exiles when Daniel and his friends are renamed by the authority uh, that they're, that they come under through their, through the judge. Likewise with, with Moses, he also had a new name from Pharaoh, a man who saw himself as God. And so what Jesus is doing is completely important to see. He is claiming to be one who has the authority to superimpose over the father of Simon what Simon's destiny will be in becoming Peter. You see, Jesus is saying through the scriptures, through the context, through knowing what the importance of a name is, Jesus is claiming to be divine. Christ knows his people absolutely. And just as Isaiah prophesied that God would call his people by name, Jesus knows his people by name. And in fact, this shows up at the end of the scriptures when we get to Revelation. Jesus is giving a word to the churches and he says, him who overcomes, I will give him a white stone and on it a name which no one but he knows. Of all the promises in the Bible, I like that one. It's, it's up there. It's in my top 10. You, you want to know why? Is it, it's a name that only Christ and that soul knows. It speaks about the special nature and character of this saving, miraculous, 
working God who is able to not only redeem me from what I was as a human in my human name, but he will bestow a grace gift upon me, that there will be some aspect of our communion that we will have fellowship in a way that that no one is privy to. It's absolutely a wonderful promise, and I think it is even edified for us or, or codified here in this very action. Jesus is saying, I have the authority to rename you, and I know for sure you will be that little rock which I build my church on, but also I know that I will accomplish the work. You shall be called Peter. Just as Andrew called Simon Peter, Philip also calls Nathaniel. And in so doing, Philip identifies Christ as him of whom Moses wrote. The great fulfillment of Moses and the prophet's writings is found in Jesus Christ. The the prophet uh, Moses said to the people as he was about to depart from them, that there is one coming There is a prophet who God will arise from among your midst. It is to him you must listen and him you must obey. You must obey his words. He goes on to say, anyone who does not take heed of the words of that prophet, God will hold him accountable. And you see, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, we see this amazing series of verses in the last chapter, the the very last words of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the scripture. And an editor had taken hold of Deuteronomy and inserted a statement. Because what happened is Moses gave them a wonderful promise that one day God would arise a prophet like unto me from among your brothers. And at the at some time in the future, after the Pentateuch had been written and closed, Moses had died, and generations later, Someone, the editor, the assembler of the Old Testament uh, scrolls had inserted a verse or two, and not in such a way as it removes the authority of Scripture, but actually testifies as to what God was inspiring among the people. At the very end of that book, Deuteronomy, the editor added a verse or two which says that no one like the prophet that Moses had spoken about, had arisen who knows God face to face. And you see in John chapter 1, just before our reading opened today, what did, what did we read about the, the word of God which comes down from heaven? He explained him. He was the one who was with God. See, Jesus is identified by Philip as the one of whom Moses and all the prophets wrote. Jesus is not just God in the flesh. Jesus is not just the Lamb of God. Jesus is the promised one to come, who God had been speaking about at every time in his interaction with the people. Nathaniel's accusation of the defiling nature of Nazareth, therefore, is quite ironic because what it says is, okay, Philip's saying, everything that Moses wrote and all of the prophets, it all is summed up in Christ. And we found him and we know because it's been revealed to us that this is the one who's going to fulfill everything. And Nathaniel then takes offense at where he comes from. I think this is quite interesting. Nathaniel says in verse 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You see, Nathaniel at this moment is not thinking by the spirit. He's saying, oh, well, he came from Nazareth. Nazareth is maybe, maybe not as bad as 
a city that you might hold in derision, I would think of Las Vegas. You know, if you told me that you were going to start a church plant in Las Vegas, I would say, pray again. (laughs) I'm kidding. Las Vegas would be a great place to start a church. The point is that Nazareth was a city that was held in derision. The people thought Nazareth was a defiling town. It would be like, you know, announcing you're going to start a major corporation and say, well, we're going to put it in, you know, Lima, Ohio. You know, their slogan in Lima is not another bean town. I mean, come on. This, I, I'm, I actually, I, I have nothing against Lima. I'm trying to get an illustration for you to see what Nathaniel is saying. Nathaniel is saying that, that it's highly improbable, Philip, that you're right. Because he came from Nazareth. And we all know he's supposed to come from Bethlehem. And Nazareth's a horrible town. What are you talking about? What's interesting to me is the way that Jesus responds to Nathaniel. He actually says something that I think is kind of amazing in the scriptures because Nathaniel is saying, oh, he came from Nazareth. He must be, you must be wrong. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus then says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. I think what Jesus is saying is, Nathaniel, you're taking exception that I came from Nazareth, but I'm surprised that I found an Israelite who doesn't lie. Do you feel that that tit for tat, that repartee? Nathaniel is surprised about this. Nathaniel thinks the city is bad, but Jesus knows and says to Nathaniel, the entire nation is defiled. These people were supposed to be those who upheld truth and were a light to the surrounding nations, and yet Jesus says, most of your land is filled with liars. This is a grand indictment against the moral state of the people that most of them are deceivers. Nathaniel's revelation, therefore, after what Jesus says to him, is all the more surprising and again confirming one of the major points of this passage today is that God is the one who gives faith to human men and women. If they are able to see the worth of Christ, if they are able to know Christ, it is because God opens their ears to hear. Nathaniel's revelation confirms both what John the Baptist and Peter have said, that the Son of God is also the Messiah or the Anointed One, the Christ, the one to sit on the throne of David. Christ finishes calling Nathanael, promising him to behold the glory of his ministry as angels of God ascend and descend on the Son of Man. Now, Jesus is referring explicitly back to Jacob when he had come to a town called Bethel. He had a dream, and he saw a ladder ascending into the heavens, and the angels of God upon that ladder were ascending and descending. That is to say, there was a bridge that Jacob saw, and Jesus lays hold of that imagery and then tells Nathanael, you're amazed and you believed because I told you one miracle? I tell you the truth, you are going to see me as the union between heaven and earth. That the angels of God, as Hebrews says, are ministers to those who are to inherit salvation. Those angels of God will be coming through me. I will be the one who mediates them. This will be done as he is the son of man, the one to receive a kingdom and authority. This is why I think the study of the Old Testament is so enriching. is because Jesus does not just use the latter imagery from Jacob, but then he identifies him as the son of man, 
out of Daniel chapter 7, the one who ascends up to the Ancient of Days and receives kingdom and all authority. That's what he's saying. You know me as, the, as God in the flesh, you will know me as the one who receives the kingdom. This is what Christ is doing. We've heard testimony after testimony. John the Baptist, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, and then Jesus puts a capstone at the very end of the chapter. I'm not just God in the flesh. I'm not just going to make an atonement. I am the one who is going to receive the kingdom for the saints and bestow it upon them. Let's close. Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. We ask you that you would teach us how to approach your scriptures, and that in doing so, you would, by your spirit, create new life in us, that you would perform regeneration, Holy Spirit, that you would accomplish the work that we cannot. Lord, your scriptures say plainly that that we as ministers of the gospel can simply sow, but it is you who causes growth. We pray, God, that you would be so pleased to move upon these words as to give us the very same revelations that John the Baptist and Simon Peter and Philip and Nathaniel have, that we would see Christ as not only God come in the flesh, but also the one to make an atonement and the one to baptize in the spirit and the one to bestow a kingdom upon his saints. We pray that you would create in us expectation for your kingdom, that we would not only love to see these things in the scriptures, but that by your spirit, you would make us alive to them, that they would become head knowledge and heart knowledge, and they would transform our lives. We pray, God, that you would give us grace as we seek to learn of your son, and that you would, by your spirit, call these things to, to memory, that they would be sweet and precious food for our souls. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.